you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, we're going to be reading from there, uh, Acts 16, starting in, in verse 16, and we'll read to verse 40, and then we're going to pray and uh, turn to the explanation of God's word. Starting in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 picks up after Paul has moved into the region of Macedonia, um, not finding much spiritual fruit. He goes to the place of prayer down by the river, meets a woman named Lydia, shares the gospel with her, and she believes. Uh, We pick up after that. The scripture says in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, The magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore, come out now and go in peace. <coughs> but Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you don't call us just to be what we are already, but you call us to be who you see us to be, who you are shaping us to be, Lord. This will mean death to self, death to self-desire, death to the plans perhaps that we have that are not consistent with your will. But it will mean that all that you desire us to be, all that you have placed in us, all that you desire to use from us will come out in its fullness, Lord. Apart from Christ dwells in us no good thing, but through Christ we can do all things. Lord, we pray that we, by your strength and your grace, might be all that you are calling us to be, Father. May we depend on you in faith. May we hold tight to you in faith. May we walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, may we believe in that which is not seen, having seen come to pass that which we have trusted you for, Lord. May the small victories of the past, the, the small victories of faith, spur us onward to greater and greater acts of faith and devotion as we see you by your power bring your will to pass in our lives. Father, we thank you for this word, and I pray that as we dig into it, Lord, as we look from section to section, as we see different things happening, I pray that the central theme of trusting in you, of being certain of our faith in uncertain times, Lord, I pray that that would sustain and buoy us through difficult times. May you... By faith, Father, through our faith, strengthen our trust in you. And may we have the will and the grace and the strength in you, Lord, to live out the commands that you've called us to follow. That, that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you, Lord, though we stand, it seems, at times on shifting sands. Circumstances change. Your will, your word, your goodness, your love, they remain the same. May we not be shaken, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I, I am not a, a big sports guy, and so you'll have to take this on, on, on trust and authority. Uh, I did swim for a, a number of years and uh, you know, have, a, have a little bit of, of interest in, in all kinds of geek trivia, uh, but I have it on, on good authority that there is such a thing as muscle memory. Okay, uh, one of the reasons why, uh, why, why, why athletes practice over and over and over again, uh, one of the reasons why, why my son is, is out in the front yard throwing his, his Frisbee, uh, which is a current passion of his, over and over and over again, is, is not that you're not out there just trying to develop some random skill, right? But you're out there throwing the Frisbee at the garbage can over and over and over and over again, developing the proper throw, practicing the proper throw over and over and over, right? This is why um, back in, I believe it was in the 90s, a friend of mine had this giant PVC ring and, and he had a, a golf club and he would stand within this ring and he would practice the proper swing over and over and over again, like 10,000 times in his garage. So that when, when he got out there on the golf course and it was time to, to tee off, all of that practice would pay off in that moment, right? You don't just decide one day, hey, I'm going to put on some football pads, right, and uh, get a helmet and a jersey and, and go and play for the NFL, right? You know, because, because you're not just going to be able to, to catch or to throw, or to run. There's intense amounts of practice that are involved. The, the truth is, and this is uh, based on some study of some experts, I'd refer you to uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, if you're interested in this, that, that most people who are experts, the, the people who go out there, and they do amazing things, whether it's in sports or in music, they have practiced for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. They have done these things over and over and over again. And so they go out there and they do something that's very, very hard, but they make it look so easy because it is second nature to them. And again, caution on sports here, because I, I don't really know, but they say that when Wayne Gretzky, for the very first time, played the hockey puck off of someone's back, and scored a goal. No one had ever thought of that before, but to him, it just seemed like second nature. It seemed like something that could be done even though it hadn't been done. And here's a guy making sports history. He spent so much time on the ice. He's got so much skate control and stick control and puck control that, that he can say, I'm gonna take a shot at this. And he makes sports history. As Christians, so often we head in to hard times. We head in to difficult times. And we find our faith is shattered. We find that our knowledge is limited. We, we find that our ability to trust is, is tested. We find our temptations exceed, from our perspective, our ability to resist. And we 
turn the blame on God. Rather than looking at the fact that we have not dug a deep well into God's Word. We have not met the tests and trials of faith head on and trusted. Instead, we have solved our difficulties in our own strength. We have failed to think through the deep things of our faith. We have failed to rejoice and to trust in God. And so when we dig in times of great trial, we find nothing there to meet us. And we blame God instead of placing the blame where it goes. And that is on ourselves. Now, don't take this as a giant condemnation. My, my hope this morning is to encourage you through Paul's example and to point you to these resources so that when great difficulty comes, you will have heard and know and have replied and responded by digging that deep well, by, by thinking through the implications of your faith, by trusting through the smaller tests and trials. I believe what, what this second half of Acts 16 teaches us is that when we face uncertain circumstances, certainty of faith is a sure guide for us. To be certain of our faith is a guide when we hit uncertain circumstances. Now, let me just challenge and unpack this for a second, because so often from our perspective, what seems certain to us is our circumstances. What I realize right now is that I have six bills, which amount to $10,000, and what I have in my account is $6,000, right? That's, that's what's certain to us because we can see those numbers. We can, we can see them clearly in front of us, and we can say, those are the mathematical realities. That is what is real in front of me. What seems less real is our faith. Faith is something we believe from our society's definition. Faith is, faith is putting confidence in that which is uncertain. But the biblical accounts of believers and of faith turn the tables on that. What can be depended on in Scripture is God himself and his promises and his word. What cannot be depended on? What should not be trusted? What should be challenged? What should be faced head on and charged into by faith is our circumstances. A significant experience of mine in 1999, uh, Nancy and I were preparing to go to seminary, heading off to grad school. We we're going to be living on about $1,200 a month, uh, living in South Carolina, going to school. No real guarantees that tuition was going to be there long term. and. Uh, I had gone to the, the leadership of, of my church, and uh, a, a dear gentleman who's with the Lord, Rudy Schober, looked at me, and he looked at my budget, and he said, Keith, he said, you, you, are, you are asking people to help you through grad school. You cannot be driving around in an expensive new leased car. This was our, our glitzy, sporty 
2000 Nissan Altima. I loved it. You know, this was my first car that had a CD player in it. Up until then, I just had cassette players. The buttons on, on uh, Nancy's old Sunbird had, had broken through, you know, and so you like put your finger into a hole like to, to hit the play button. I mean, we just, we played so many cassette tapes on that thing, we'd, we'd worn them out. And so they, they told us that we should give up that car. And so I assigned the lease, signed it over to my brother's father-in-law and was about to head off to seminary in three days with no vehicle, with no car. Moving to South Carolina, I have nothing to drive. We're sitting at a, um, but we knew it was right. We knew it was the right thing to do. Sitting at a picnic at uh, Nancy's parents' neighbor's house and, and one of uh, her father's friends, not a Christian, a man by the name of Jim Flynn walks up to us and says, would you be insulted? He said, I, I don't know. I talked to your father-in-law before I came and talked to you. Would you be insulted if I offered you my wife's old station wagon? He said, it's not the fanciest car. He apparently used to shovel the snow off of the hood with the, a metal shovel, <laughs> you know? And so uh, the, the, the paint was all peeling and uh, it was one of those beautiful station wagons with like the plastic wood on the sides, you know, and the plastic wood was peeling away. But he said, I'm gonna buy my wife a new car. I could trade this thing in and get nothing or I could give it to you and you could get some use out of it. And I said, yeah, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, that car lasted us three years through grad school, 24 trips north and south to South Carolina, and then gave up the ghost in our front yard in New Jersey three or four months after I'd left seminary. Uh, my mom, shopping at a yard sale, found a little matchbox model of that car and gave it to me. Uh, and it's in my office as a, as a reminder that God comes through. And that was a small test. It didn't take a whole lot of faith to just wait for God to drop something in my lap. But trusting there exercises the muscle as the bigger tests come. If cancer comes, if bankruptcy comes, if injury or illness or persecution comes, the muscle has been exercised. We see Paul doing this in Acts chapter 16. We see him heading to the place of prayer. He has shared the gospel. Uh, he, has, um, uh, he has been involved in this, this, not a breakout ministry like the ones he's often been involved in, um, but, but a, a woman has been converted and, and she's taken them into their home. And so he's going back to this place of prayer to continue to share the gospel. And he's met by a slave girl. This is a, a young woman. She is possessed by an evil spirit that the spirit can predict and tell the future. Uh, and those who own her uh, take the money that she earns telling people's fortunes. She, she tells them secrets or reveals truths about their, their future. There's nothing in this text that would indicate that this is some kind of trick. This is some kind of genuine demonic knowledge from another place. And this girl encounters them on, on the way and, and the demon latching on 
to, to, uh, to, to Paul's ministry, follows Paul and keeps crying out over and over, these men are the servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. She keeps doing this over and over and over. And this irritates Paul greatly. Why? Because, because in this culture, far detached from God, this, this uh, slave girl dwells in a, in a section of that culture that is viewed as highly ungodly. Uh, she is, she is uh, attached. Probably people consult her to find out if their spouses are cheating on them or, or to find out if uh, this is not a stretch of the imagination, to try to find out if, if someone is, is trying to swindle them in a business deal or to, to, to kill them. These are the kinds of things they ask her, these kinds of questions. And she then tells them the answers. And so uh, people's lives hinge on the information that comes from her. And Paul does not want to be connected to this person, to this testimony, to this reputation, to, to the God-fearer, to the person like Lydia, whom Paul has been reaching out to and reaching. This is not an enhancement to Paul's testimony. This is a hindrance to him. So, uh, despite looking at this testimony as some kind of, or rather than looking at this testimony as some kind of advantage, Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, turns and says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, I want to point out that Paul has no guarantee that he's going to be able to heal or to change this situation. The Bible doesn't give us any indication like it does in other places, like in Luke chapter 4, that the, that the Spirit is there and, and ready to heal. Instead, Paul, in confidence, in, in, in great assurance of God's working power, trusting in, in the fact that God has worked in the past, just addresses the irritating situation. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And the Bible says it came out of her that very hour. Paul has, has trusted in God in the past. He's seen him work in the past in this way. And so he commands the Spirit, come out of her. He's, he's in this uncertain circumstance, and his faith gives him great certainty. Now, you might not be overly impressed with that. I don't intend you to be, but let me just point out this. <coughs> Paul lays hold of the power that he already knows that he possesses. You might say, okay, in my life and in my temptations, it would be wonderful to have this kind of power to be able to drive the, the devil away. I say this to you as your brother in Christ, you have this power. You have this ability in Christ. It is promised to you in the scriptures. If you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if, if he is your savior, if you trust in him as Lord, if the Holy Spirit has come and indwelled you, then you possess power. Not power in and of yourself, but power from God given to you by the Spirit in you and activated by your faith. Let me prove this to you. James says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee 
from you. I was talking to a brother in Christ a number of years ago who was talking about whenever temptation came, he, he folded and he said, he said to me, he said, the devil is, he's too strong. It's like he's on me. He, he knows me. He, he, he sifts me. He owns me. And I said, listen, you're getting your information from the wrong place. You're trusting what your intellect and your experience have formulated and, and put together from the result of past circumstances about the devil. And you need to be certain of your faith. And this is what your faith revealed, Jude says, once for all in the scriptures says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't know what it is. It, it might be fear of God, fear of the truth. It might be the fact that he's extremely lazy or he's incredibly weak. But when we push back against the devil, he runs away. And that's the truth. When you are in the midst of temptation, avoid redefining your temptation based on what's being said to you by the devil. Instead, trust what's in you that you know of God's word, which is ultimately true. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In effect, this is what Paul does here. Paul lays hold of the, the power and the, the testimony which was promised to the apostles. They were, they were told by Jesus that they would have the power to cast out demons. And Paul is like, here I am on the edge of, of gospel testimony and I'm being assaulted and harassed by this demon. And he pushes back, he resists, come out of her. And it came out at this very hour, at that very hour. Resist the devil, brothers and sisters, and he will flee from you. What you have is a choice to trust your circumstances. I'm tempted. I can steal this money or be dishonest or be sexually immoral or I can lie or I can cheat or I can do any of these things or I can trust what the scripture says. That if I resist the devil, he will flee from me. I can trust what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation that comes on me is beyond my ability to resist in Jesus Christ. And if I trust God, who always, who's always faithful, then I will find the way of escape. Look at what Paul says in the armor of God sections of Ephesians, section of Ephesians 6, verse 16. He says, in all circumstances... This is circumstances where we think, I got that, and circumstances where we think, whoa, I need God, I don't got that. Okay, by the way, I would say all circumstances fall into this category. What does Proverbs say? In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, even the ways where you're like, I'm an expert here, I know the answer. In all your ways, acknowledge him, he will make your paths straight. In all circumstances, Ephesians 6.16, Paul says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What does that mean? It means that we ought to be certain of our faith in the midst of uncertain circumstances. We trust not what we are told, by circumstances surrounding us, but what we are told by God's word. 
Now that may have been an unimpressive first example, but the story goes on. What happens when Paul heals this slave girl, when the demon comes out of her, her owners see that their hope of gain is gone, and they grab Paul and Silas, and they begin to mistreat them. It's interesting to me that we live in a world where our movies so often present us evil, right, in, in terms of, like, I want to destroy the world, right? That's like what supervillains do. They build giant bombs, and Captain America throws his shield at them because they want to destroy the world. But, right, that's not so often the way that evil plays out in the world. In this particular situation, great evil comes on Paul and Silas. They are, they are forcibly dragged before the magistrates. They're falsely accused, they're attacked, their garments are torn off of them. And so they have the shame of nakedness. They're beaten with rods, with many blows, thrown into prison and then locked in the stocks. Why? Because of love of money. Love of money. Some men see their profit go away and they freak out. The advance of the gospel into this young girl's life results in a loss of profit for some, and they respond violently. Let me tell you what, this might not be the case often here in this country, but it is in some places. When you preach the gospel where there is are, are slaves or human trafficking, or if you go to Vegas and you share the gospel with, with, with people who are, who are trapped in prostitution, you are causing trouble for someone. And the wrath of the world will lash back at you. 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I wonder if Paul, in his irritation and his annoyance, as this girl is drawing away from his mission, I wonder if looking at her just before he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her, he looked up at his owners and thought, her owners and thought, this is going to set off the chain. Something's going to happen if I do this. He's not dumb. He knows she works for someone. He knows that, that, that she's not running off with all this money that she makes each and every day. And in healing her, they then freak out. These men have come to destroy our commerce and our culture. They turn on Paul and Silas and begin to beat them. They, they drag them um, before the magistrates. They are falsely accused. I wonder if the words which Luke would write in Luke 6, verse 22, are ringing in Paul's ears. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. It is one thing to read that and to say, yes, Lord, when you're sitting at your table with your Bible open, with your cup of coffee and your morning bagel egg, whatever, and to read that and to say, yes, Lord, may that be true of me, and to think it when you're being dragged somewhere where they're going to beat you up. There's a world of difference. They're attacked by the crowd. Their garments are torn off of them. They are beaten 
with rods. A number of years ago, when a, a young man, I believe he had vandalized a number of signs in Singapore, and he was sentenced to be caned. Uh, and there was a big controversy about this. Should an American citizen be caned? Uh, I remember reading in an article that, that they said that they, they beat them with a large bamboo cane. And that the average person can survive nine or ten blows from one of these canes. This is, this is not like, you know, smacking them with a curtain rod, you know, or, or, or getting a spanking with a kitchen spoon. This is a, a significant beating. It says they were beaten with many blows. No idea how many. When, when they are pulped, when they are bloody and bruised, they then turn them over to the jailer and they say, keep him under guard. And they, they take Paul and Silas. The jailer then puts him into what's called the inner prison, the prison within the prison, not just a cell, but a dungeon-style cell. And to heighten the indignity, their, their feet are fastened in the stocks, half-dead men being further bound. At this point, there are still no charges. And our justice system is, is built loosely on some Roman traditions. There is supposed to be a charge. There's supposed to be some kind of initial hearing. You just don't move to punishment. This is mob justice. And now these men are jailed. Blessed are you when people hate you. Do Paul and Silas feel blessed right now? pastor by the name of Harry Ironside says the world is watching Christians and when they see Christians shaken by circumstances as they themselves are they conclude that after all there is very little to Christianity but when they find Christians rising above circumstances and glorying in the Lord even in the deepest trial then even the unsaved realize that the Christian has something in knowing Christ to which they have no access. Look at what the passage says in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Right? In our culture, right, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to Disney World, right? That's like singing, rejoicing, exuberant joy. You are, in, in terms of the, the eyes of the world, you are the most powerful people right now. You've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? Yay! You've been beaten within an inch of your life. You are bound, immobile, in a stinking, smelly, moldy, prison and they sing why because though their circumstances are uncertain they have certainty of faith what is it that makes Paul sing I think of the verses that trip me up when I am honest about my own commitment to Christ the level of devotion Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Who among us can say that with complete honesty? Is that verse not there so that when we struggle and we fail and we fall and we complain and we whine and we see that there and it arrests us and says, it is not so in your heart. We can say, Lord Jesus, make it so. And we can dig a deep well into God. And is it not there so that we will memorize it and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against him, that when our flesh and our heart do fail, we can say, it doesn't matter. God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion. Though you've taken away this physical possession from me, though you have injured my flesh, though you've abused me and persecuted me, God is the strength of my heart, and you cannot touch that. A pastor by the name of Harold Burchett has said that all that the church cannot take with itself into persecution is inessential. Think about all that Paul, have, Paul and Silas have. They are chained. They are bound. Even their clothes are shredded. They have nothing left except the promises of God and the hymns that they're singing. This is a scary prospect, brothers and sisters. But we so often don't face temptations and persecutions like this, do we? And yet we fall apart in the face of trials so often. The prisoners were listening. And the prisoners saw these two men not shaken by their circumstances, but they found them rising above their circumstances and glorying in the Lord, even in the midst of deepest trial. And they, I believe, believed that those men possessed something they knew nothing of. And so we see deliverance. In the middle of the night, the passage says that a great earthquake came disapproval from God to this city for abusing his servants. This is his response to their abuse. We've seen this before. We've seen in, early in the book of Acts that, that Peter and John were abused and they prayed and they say, God, deliver us. Give us the opportunity to stand and to testify in front of other people. And, and God shook the place of prayer and they were driven from it by the power of the Spirit to go and testify. Here again, we see another earthquake, a sign of God's disapproval, and he throws open the doors of the prison and looses every prisoner's bonds. And the jailer who abused Paul and Silas and locked them up beyond the necessary restraints awakes. Perhaps he's a heavy sleeper. I wonder why it takes him so long to get up. I would, I would think he'd be up right away. But by the time he gets to the scene, uh, whether he's got to move from wherever he sleeps or he's got to come from home or something, I'm not sure. But when he gets there, he believes that all the prisoners have escaped and he decides that, that he's going to kill himself. Do you know what the incentive was 
against prison laxity in the first century. Uh, the Code of Justinian says that the guard who allows prisoners to escape will suffer the same fate that the prisoner was to suffer. So if there's anybody in this prison who was to be beaten again, he would be beaten. If there's anybody who's to be put to death, he would be put to death. As he gets ready to, to kill himself by his own sword, though, rather than face punishment, face public scorn, he, he decides to end his own life. Paul and Silas shout out, do not harm yourself. We are all here. I wonder if, if as the prisoners were loosed and they began to, to look about to see if the guards were there, if they could escape. I wonder if Paul and Silas told them, just stay right here, stay here, stay with us. And if they were either in fear of what Paul and Silas could do to them because their faith had torn down the jail, or if they were just so uh, shocked and awed by what happened that they were like, well, we had no plans of going anywhere. We, we have no idea what's going on, but they all stay. The jailer's response, he is overwhelmed by this, and he, he responds to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? I wonder, in an idolatrous land, is he protecting himself from these two Jewish sorcerers who tore down this prison, or is he protecting himself from their God who would exact revenge upon him because he had abused his servants? locking them up, not just in prison, but in the inner prison, and fastening them in the stocks when they had done really and truly nothing wrong. Convicted, perhaps, by his complicity as justice is miscarried. I wonder if this man is somebody who has been corrupt for years, looking the other way as the magistrates and the businessmen tell him what to do deep conviction comes upon him and he realizes that he is judged and that if he had to stand before the righteous God of Paul's proclaiming and of the slave girls proclaiming that he would perish and he cries out what must I do to be saved I don't know about you but if this were me and I were in need of medical attention and much Advil, I would probably say something like, you could start by being nicer to people. <laughs> you are the worst of the worst. This prison facility is abusive, and you need to repent of these sins. No, Paul trusts that he is in this place at this moment by the will of God for this purpose to say to this man, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, you and any who believe. And he spoke the word of the Lord to them. This means that he goes into a full-scale gospel presentation. You, my friend, are a sinner. 
You've sinned against God, and you are in great need of a Savior. And God sent such a Savior, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous life, live that righteous life in your stead, so that when He goes to the cross, He takes your sins upon Him, so that you, by faith, believing that He was put to death for your sins, can walk away righteous, because He took your sins and gives you His righteousness. And if you will repent of your sins, which are great, here He goes, perhaps, including abuse of prisoners like myself, if you repent of your sins and admit that they are exceedingly sinful, God will save you. Certainty of faith sustains him through this difficult time. He spoke the word of the Lord to them, and it says that he responded in great mercy and kindness. The man convicted of his sins, it says that he washed them evidence of his changed heart. He binds their wounds. And then it says, he was baptized. They then washed him. He rejoiced, it says, at his newfound faith. He and his family rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I wonder if this is a situation where a corrupt and hard and difficult and sinful man whose family has been desiring for some kind of change in his life, suddenly in a blink of an eye he's transformed and they are all delighted and excited because this is what they have been waiting for for a long time. That might be right there in verse 34, I am not sure. What is the cost of this man's salvation? Paul's unwavering trust that God had him in those circumstances at that moment to preach the gospel, though he had been beaten within an inch of his life. Let me tell you what, it is, it is relatively easy to stand up here and say this. It will be an entirely different thing to live through it. But Jesus doesn't call us to trust him through easy things. He calls us to trust him with our very lives. Though my heart and my flesh might fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we say that we believe God's word and it contains those kinds of things within, we are saying a dangerous thing. If our view of God is happiness and lollipops and roses, and beach parties all the time. The Macedonian man of the beginning of chapter 16 had called to them, come and help us. But they did not see their need of the gospel until they were condemned and convicted because of the wickedness that they had done to Paul. They were in a fallen condition, but they were unaware of their need. And God demonstrated it to this man using his unrighteousness and an earthquake. Rather than abandoning his faith in the midst of uncertain circumstances, Paul remained certain of his faith, though wickedness and evil came upon him, and he trusted, and that trust sustained him to the point of his next ministry divine appointment. But we're not done. Five more verses. And this might be the 
Why do we, we always get to the big point and then it's the end, it's, it's over, I'm out of time. Paul uh, is, the, the next day, the magistrates send perhaps to the jailer's house. Uh, they send to wherever Paul is staying and they, they say to the jailer, let those men go. Uh, it's morning, turn them out. The jailer reports the words to Paul and he's like, hey, Paul, the, 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 the magistrates have said uh, that, that you can go. So... Um, Go in peace. Paul's response is, really? They, they have beaten us publicly. Uh, we, we did nothing wrong. We, we were not charged with wrong. We, we were not uh, uh, condemned. We were, we were not sentenced. We are, by the way, Roman citizens. We've been thrown into prison and beaten. We've been placed in bonds. And now they throw us out secretly. No, no, no. Go back and take this message to them. You come here and apologize to us yourselves. I love that. God uses us, by the way. He uses our personalities. You can sense the level of snark and contempt for government abuse in Paul here, right? Many of us can identify with that, um, primarily with, with the snark. But, but Paul is not just like, oh, you know, submit to, all, to the government in all things here. No, he appeals to his rights as a citizen of Rome. Come and tell me that I can go. Come and make an apology. It says that the police then go back to the magistrates. They report these things, and, and the magistrates are afraid when they heard that they're Roman citizens. These guys know that they have beaten Roman citizens, which is illegal, and that they could lose their place if they make a formal report. So they come, hat in hand, whatever kind of weird Roman hats they, they wear, laurels in hands, and they apologize to them. They take them out of the prison. They're like, look, it's the public square, and this is where we eat, and this is now, please leave. Right? And they escort them out. The question that occurs to me is, why did Paul not appeal earlier? Why did he not say, I'm a Roman citizen and avoid the beating? One, I think, is he is not afraid of suffering. He sees suffering as part and parcel of the Christian faith. Acts 14.22, he had taught the church through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so he knew to expect suffering, to expect rejection. The world, whether it is the financial system that made up the market where the slave girl was enslaved, or whether it's this local system of government, or whether it's the system of government that we live in, the world hates challenges to its power. And so we ought to expect when we preach and teach the gospel in its fullness that people will try to persecute us. Just expect it. Expect suffering. Paul's not afraid of suffering, nor does he think he has a right to a trouble and pain-free life. Why does he appeal to the government at this point? Three reasons, and then I close. I'm taking it on confidence. Many of you say, when you say you've got three points left, and then you say, I don't have time, and you cut it short, it irritates us. And so in order to not irritate you, I'm just going to finish up. I'm taking on faith. My certainty of faith will sustain me through uncertain circumstances. Why does Paul appeal to the government after? This is not just snark for snark's sake. As Christians, I believe it's important that we conduct ourselves in a respectable manner, and specifically when we challenge the powers 
that be, we ought to avoid the freedom of expressing empty words. We ought not just to blather on about government oppression for no reason, but we ought to do so if we're going to with great principle. Okay? When we speak up, let us speak up in a way that though it may be snarky, it, it, it pulls back short of the line of out-and-out out disrespect and sinfulness, okay? The, the people who are in authority over us are still human beings, and we speak as Christians, speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ in essence, and we ought to make sure that we speak in a holy way. Paul is speaking in a holy way in verse 37, so this is not saying zero snark in your speech, okay? Figure it out. Why does he appeal after? One is he needs to prove to the government and prove to Philippian society that they had done nothing wrong. Okay? They had done nothing wrong and they were wrongly condemned. Paul believes Romans 13 where it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul had not broken this instruction, which he would later write in his actions, and he was punished. And so he appeals to the government so that they will respond to his appeal by saying he had done nothing wrong. Okay? Does that make sense? He calls on them and says, let them put us away themselves. They're not just going to send us away in silence. We didn't do anything wrong. And then in fear, they come and they beg forgiveness or they, they try to mollify Paul and Silas and keep them from formulating a complaint, admitting that they had done nothing wrong. They've been called on their bad behavior. Because it's important to put to death the, 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 the injunction here that these men who are Jews are advocating customs that are not lawful in verse 21. That is exactly the opposite of what they had been doing. They did nothing wrong. They also, I believe he also appeals to put the local government on account. This is in good tradition. Jesus standing before Pilate, beaten, bloody, Pilate says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus pushes back and says, you have too high an opinion of yourself, Pilate. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Your power, Pilate, is not your own. It is given to you by God and it is given to you to use under God's authority and in a way consistent with the will and the moral attributes of God. All government, brothers and sisters, is not free to do anything it wants under Romans 13. It is responsible to God to live out the commands of God with integrity. These men did not have the integrity to stand behind what they did. They had no cause for doing what they did. And Paul puts them on account. They would have to give an account for themselves. There's a kindness here. Do you see it? He's giving them an opportunity to repent of their wrong. 
But finally, he does this for a pastoral reason, to protect the church. Paul is not self-focused. He does not appeal to his right not to be beaten before he is beaten. Instead, he is other-focused. He's not focusing on his personal honor, but focusing, focusing on, the, on justice for the church that he's leaving behind. He will leave Lydia and, and the church that contains the Philippian jailer. And he does not want them to have Paul's mantle of being a troublemaker on them. He wants them to be seen as just, righteous, honest, good members of society. And so he challenges them, challenges the government for the protection of the church. And, but yet he's going to move on, trusting in what he would write in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Paul trusts that God will right the wrongs done to him in his way, in his time, and feels no need to take vengeance himself. Hard stuff. For the advance of the gospel for the sustaining of your own faith. Will you trust in the certainty of your faith, the certainty of the commands of God, the certainty of things written as your guide through uncertain circumstances, whatever they may be? You may never meet a situation like Paul and Silas encountered here, but you will encounter hard times. Will you trust in the truth of God's word to sustain you through those hard times? And if you've not trusted in Christ as your Savior, will you trust in him as the first step of a life lived in harmony with the God who created you? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, it is easy, easy to say these things when compared with the difficulty of living through them. I pray, Father, that they would not just be words, but that they would be an anchor for our soul, that the truths of Scripture would sustain us through all difficulty, that our confidence in you redeeming us in Christ would rescue us from every trouble, and that as we trust in you, we'd be built up in our faith and ready to meet any struggle, any test, any circumstance that comes upon us. Father, we ask your grace on our lives. We ask that you would encourage us. Father, help us to dig deep into our faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to turn away from weakness and to trust in your word at all times. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you'd like to...